Well, good morning, River Glen. Hey, Merry Christmas. It is so great to be with you this morning. I want to say welcome to all of you here in the room today. I want to say an extra welcome to everyone who's watching online right now or maybe sometime off in the future. And, of course, a great, great big welcome to all my friends over in Pewaukee. I love you guys. I miss you. I can't wait to do Christmas Eve services with you this year. It is going to be awesome. I'll see you later this week. Uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Jason, and as you probably already guessed, I get the unbelievable honor to serve as the campus pastor of our campus over in Pewaukee. And what we're going to be talking about today is L-O-V-E, love. Love is our topic today, only it's probably not what you think. And I say that because around this time of year, usually when you, when you start talking about love around the holidays, for a lot of folks, three words come to mind. Hallmark Christmas movies. Yeah, don't be ashamed. Where's all my Hallmark movie fans out there? Let me hear you make some noise. Yes, yes. It's a real thing, I tell you. Now, just for conversation's sake, right, just to kind of see a contrast to who else is in the room, I want to know who else out there like me feels that Die Hard is actually a Christmas movie. Let me hear you make some noise. Yes. <laughs> well, speaking of Hallmark Christmas movies, if you've ever been watching a Hallmark Christmas movie, and about halfway through the movie, you start thinking to yourself, gosh, I feel like I've seen this one before. <laughs> Turns out you're not wrong. They've cracked the code. We found this on the internet this week. Here it is, ladies and gentlemen, the Hallmark Christmas movie plot generator. We now have proof that they basically all follow the same thing. Let's say, for example, let's pick a name. Let's see uh, Carrie. Carrie lives in a big city where she's a very successful interior designer. And she decides to return home to her small town at Christmas time. Always the way it happens, right? And why is she going home? What happened? Well, of course, it's to save the family business, right? And then along the way, she magically falls in love. It's wonderful. And who does she fall in love with? Let's pick here. Um, a single dad and his precocious child. There it is. And they live happily ever after. Right. Fortunately or unfortunately, we are not going to be talking about Hallmark love this morning. Instead, we're going to be talking about godly love. Now, part of the call to live as Christians is to love like God loves, which brings us to the question, well, how does God love us? That's what we're going to be exploring today. And we've spent the last few weeks looking at four Old Testament prophets. And prophet is kind of an old school Bible word. It really just means messenger. A prophet is a messenger. And the messenger we're going to look at today is a guy named Malachi. Now, there are 17 prophetic books in the Old Testament. And we picked these four books specifically for two reasons. First, the audience that they were written to was the Jewish people of antiquity. And even though we are separated by centuries of time, our culture today actually shares a lot in common with their culture back then. And the second reason we picked these four books is that the timing is appropriate because all four of these books point directly towards Christmas. And that's why we called the series BC, Before Christmas. I know that's not really what BC stands for, but we just thought it'd be an interesting play on words because these four messages all have within it the promise of hope at Christmas time. Now, every Old Testament prophecy ultimately falls into one of three categories. Some of them were wisdom, Right? Others were warnings, and then the rest of them were encouragement. And thankfully for all of us, Malachi falls into the encouragement category. And you might be thinking, okay, well, why did they need encouragement? What was going on? Well, here's why. By the time the Jewish people had heard this message from Malachi, from God through Malachi, they were so beat down and burned out, they were literally at the brink of giving up. 
I mean, they'd been through a tremendous amount of pain and disappointment, which is why they needed to hear this message. Have you ever had pain and disappointment before? Well, we've all been through some degree of that. Makes me remember a time I was driving home from church one night. I had both my kids in the truck with me. Now, I don't know about you. I mean, I don't know what it is about a church lobby that just makes a small child lose their mind and run around like a wild animal. Does anybody else have this experience? Yeah, the struggle is real. Oh, my word. So <laughs> this night was no different. I get my kids in the truck. We're driving home, and they're all hot and sweaty and exhausted, and my son asked me for a drink of water. Now, all I had in the truck at the time was a w bottle of water with about that much water left in it. So I said, son, I don't have any water. You're just going to have to wait till we get home. And he says, come on, Dad, come on, give me a drink. I said, son, there's only this much left. There's not enough for you and your sister. We're five minutes from home. Just wait. And he says to me from the back seat, come on, Dad, I need it. I'm suffering. <laughs> I'm thinking, you're eight years old and you live in America. What do you know about suffering? You don't know anything about that. Well, the Jewish people at the time they received this message really did know about suffering. Take a look at this video and it'll explain why. was a thousand years before Christmas, around 930 BC, Israel split into two kingdoms when mostly by bad kings. So God sent the prophets to speak words that were true, but nobody listened and the kingdoms fell through. When the southern kingdom fell, the Israelites were kicked out. The people couldn't tell what God's plan was all about. They eventually returned to rebuild their temple and reclaim their land, but as the prophet Malachi writes, it wasn't all that grand. The people are disappointed, wondering if there's even a God above. Yet in the middle of all this doubt, God shows Malachi a sign of his love. So here's what happened. Just before 600 B.C., the Babylonians came in and they attacked the Jewish people. And they destroyed everything. And they took the Jewish people captive. Then about 70 years later, the Persians came in and attacked the Babylonians, also a prophecy that came true. We'll talk about that on a different weekend. The Persians came in, attacked the Babylonians, and set the Jewish people free, and they were allowed to return home. The only problem was home wasn't as good as it used to be, right? They never got to return back to normal. They were still going through a tremendous amount of pain and disappointment. The economy was struggling. Uh, they were still vulnerable to attack from other nations, so they were living in a constant state of fear. They didn't have any king or any kind of leadership they could trust. They had their freedom back, but they hadn't really found their liberty, if you know what I mean. So the opening verses of Malachi's message really kind of capture their emotional state. It says this, Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? It's as if the Jewish people were looking at heaven saying, where are you, God? Where you been? Feels like you're a million miles away from us. Feels like you don't even love us anymore. They'd been through so much pain and disappointment, they couldn't see or feel the truth that God was there and he loved them so much. Now, I want to kind of zero in. We're going to double click on one specific detail of their story. I just, I just think it's fascinating because there was one thing in particular that was especially painful to the Jewish people back then. See, when the Babylonians came in and attacked, they destroyed everything in their land, including the Jewish temple. Now, for them, this was a big deal. Because the temple was the centerpiece of their entire faith structure. 
I mean, this was the place they would go to seek God and, in, and encounter God and worship God. I mean, this was the place. In America, we have a church on almost every street corner. There, they had one, and it was gone. So when they get released from captivity, they come home, and they start building their temple again, and they finish it, and they start worshiping again. The only problem is it was empty. I mean, there was, there was people inside, but God had not yet returned to the temple to fill it with his glory. Well, that's kind of a new concept, so let me, let me unpack what I mean by that. If you go all the way back to the history of creation, God had always been a visible presence in the lives of his people. We read in Genesis that God actually walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And then we read in Exodus that God led his people, the Jewish people, out of slavery in Egypt with a cloud by day and a fire by night. Then we read in 2 Chronicles, after Solomon built the original temple... God came down and he filled the temple with his glory. It was as if the entire place was filled with smoke. Little did you know, this is why we use fog machines today. It's biblical. I'm kidding. <laughs> but the fact is, the point is, that up until that point, God had always been a visible presence in the lives of his people, which increased their faith. And now the temple was rebuilt, but it was empty and their faith was suffering. It kind of reminds me of a house I saw on the internet recently. I don't know if you knew this or not, but the world's most expensive house is actually for sale right now. It's in Bel Air, California. It's 100,000 square feet. How'd you like to pay the heating bill on that? <laughs> it's got 42 bathrooms, five swimming pools, and a 30-car garage. That's not even the best part. It has a moat. A moat, you know, like the river that goes around a house, like a castle. It has a moat. I don't know. I think that's pretty cool. Now, all of this can be yours for the modest asking price. Are you ready for this? Of $350 million. Now, that's not even what's offensive. You know what's worse than the price tag? It's the fact that the most amazing house on earth is empty. There's no family living there. There's no memories being made. There's no birthday parties. There's no backyard game day cookouts. There's no Christmas tree right now. The most amazing house on earth is just full of dust. That's it. That's heartbreaking, right? And that kind of captures what the Jewish people were going through back then. Therapists actually have a word for the kind of pain they felt. It's called abandonment trauma. Abandonment trauma happens when something or someone significant in our lives is lost. Something that's so critical to our sense of well-being and our sense of security. Now, ultimately, abandonment trauma shows up as another form of anxiety. And if it's not treated right, can lead to all kinds of messy symptoms. Tell me if any of these sound familiar. A struggle to maintain long-term relationships. Unable to develop trust in others. Codependency. Insecurity. Lack of intimacy. A need to control others. Staying in unhealthy relationships too long. Guilty on that one. Uh, the need for constant reassurance and affirmation. This list certainly describes how they must have felt back then. But I look at that list and I think, that sounds like a bunch of people I know. And I look even closer at it and I'm like, that sounds like a bunch of stuff I struggle with. And I start thinking, maybe, maybe we've all got some kind of emptiness in our life that we're dealing with. Maybe there's something empty in our lives. Maybe not an empty temple per se. But something's empty that's causing some degree of pain. Maybe for some of us, there's an empty seat at your table. There used to be someone in your life 
that was there for a long time, someone you deeply love and care about, and now they're gone. Maybe, maybe somebody you love passed away, and the hole they've left behind still hasn't healed. Maybe that empty seat was a relationship that you used to have, and now it's over. You tried as hard as you could to keep it together, and now he's gone or she's gone. Maybe it's not even that dramatic. Maybe someone you care about just moved away. Maybe the kids finally moved out. Maybe your best friend moved somewhere it doesn't snow. I don't know. But there was somebody there, and now they're gone. And there's an emptiness, and it hurts. I know for a lot of us in here, that emptiness is caused by a divorce. And I'm not talking about your divorce. I'm talking about our parents' divorce. The number one cause of abandonment trauma in adults is the experience of our parents getting a divorce. Statistics would say that's more than half of us in the room and half of us watching online. My parents doubled down. They each got divorced twice. That's a lot of pain, right? So emptiness. There's somebody there that's, that, that, that used to be there that there's not. Maybe for you it's not necessarily an empty seat at the table. Maybe it's an empty relationship. Maybe, maybe you had a parent that was there, but they just weren't emotionally available to you. They never made you feel loved or special, never made you feel safe. Right? Or worse yet, maybe you are the victim of abuse of some kind. You had someone in your life that you trusted and you were vulnerable to them and they took advantage of that and they abused you. And if that's you, I am so sorry. Whatever the case may be, chances are we've all got something empty in our lives that we're dealing with. And the pain from that is real. And this is why the message from Malachi is so powerful and it's so profound. Because in this message is a promise that can actually heal all of our abandonment trauma, all those wounds. And if we let it, the promise in this message can actually change everything about everything in our lives, if we let it. Right? This is the promise we've been looking at over the last several weeks. This is the promise that's going to bring peace and faith and hope. And as we'll see today, this is a promise that's going to point to a very visible sign of God's love. But not only all that, this is the promise that ultimately became God's sort of mic drop moment of all time. Maybe you didn't know this, but Malachi is actually the very last prophecy that we see in the Old Testament. And then history records 400 years of silence between Malachi's message and the New Testament. 400 years! How on earth could they endure 400 years? We couldn't even endure two-day delivery from Amazon. We had to make it one day, and then that wasn't good enough. Now it's same day. I think now they're working on like two-hour delivery or something crazy like that, right? 400 years? How do you deal with that? I guess the greater the promise, the greater the comfort it will bring. And so what was it? What were these great words that God spoke? What is the promise that's going to change everything about everything if we let it? Well, the book of Malachi is only four chapters long, and exactly halfway through the book, chapter 3, verse 1, Malachi records the words of God for them and for all of us, and it says this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, and then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. It's as if God is saying, hang in there, right? Just hang in there. I know, I know you're going through a lot. I know you feel pain and disappointment. I know you feel abandoned right now. I, I promise you it's all going to be worth it because I am 
coming. And here's the best part. He did. He did. He fulfilled that promise. Fast forward 400 years. The messenger he's talking about in that verse is John the Baptist, whose whole purpose on life was to pave the way for Jesus to come. He's got one of the best lines ever. He talks about the fact that there is someone coming who is greater than he, that he's not even worthy to carry his sandals. Right? He's talking about Jesus. And then what happens? The very first Christmas at a tiny little town called Bethlehem, a baby is born unlike any baby's ever been born in the history of the earth. The birth of this child is so significant, whether you believe or not, the birth of this child is so significant, it's the reason why we have B.C. and A.D. It changed the course of history. I like the way Matthew, uh, one of the gospel writers, records the moment of Jesus' birth. Matthew says it this way, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel is another name for Jesus, but what's interesting is that in the original language, Emmanuel translates, God is with us. God is with us. After all the centuries of waiting, after all the praying and all the pain and disappointment, after all the struggles of abandonment that they went through, God's promise came true. And now we can sit here today and live our lives based on the truth that in that first Christmas, God's presence to us is his presence with us. God's presence to us is his presence with us. He didn't come like smoke or fire or a cloud. He actually put on flesh and came to earth as a man. And he lived with us and he, and he walked with us and he experienced what we experienced he didn't just come back into the temple. He went way further than that. He actually went into people's homes, and he ate with them, and he laughed with them, and in some cases, he even cried with them. I think one of the most fascinating parts about this is not just the fact that he was with us, but who he was with. Because if you look, Jesus was not just exclusively an A-list Hollywood kind of guy. Right? He wasn't just hanging out with big wigs and celebrities. He would not have been keeping up with the Kardashians. Maybe he would. They need Jesus. So maybe he would have spent some time with them. But truthfully, he just spent his time with regular people like you and me. People who were lost and hurting. People who deeply want purpose and truth. And if you look really close, you'll see that he spent a lot of his time, you guys, specifically with people who had bad church experiences. I love that. God left heaven to come to earth and be with us through Jesus so that you and me and everybody watching online and all my friends over in Pewaukee, that we can be forgiven and we can have a new life and we can spend the rest of our life walking with him. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. That is the real miracle. God's presence present to us is his presence with us even 2,000 years later. Another gospel writer actually records Jesus' last words to us. The last promise he gave us says this, And surely I am with you, there's our word, always to the very end of the age. Well, the problem is we don't, we don't get to see smoke or fire or a cloud, right? We don't get to see the risen Jesus hanging out at Starbucks or at a Packers game. Because to be honest, he'll be at a Packers game, right? So what do we do when we have nothing to see? 
Have you heard that phrase, walk by faith, not by sight? What if that's true? How do we build our faith when we have nothing visible to see? Well, child psychologists have a term for this. It's called object permanence. And object permanence just describes the stage of development in an infant when they realize that just because they can't see something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Usually around eight months old, they'll observe that a child, an infant, will continue looking for something. It could be a toy that dropped or a parent that's playing hide-and-seek, even though they can't see them. It's a sign of maturity that they would believe this thing still exists and look for it even if they can't see it. Well, isn't that same thing true for all of us? Isn't it a sign of maturity in our faith that we would believe God exists and still seek him even if we can't see him? I love the way somebody put this. They found this quote on the wall of a concentration camp. We don't know who said it, but boy, did they hit the nail on the head with this. They said, I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in love even when it's not felt. And I believe in God even when he's silent. That is so good. Sometimes it's true. We do have to walk by faith and not by sight. But maybe not that much. Maybe God is more visible than we think if we just know where to look. From the time that we have left this morning, I just want to talk about what are some ways that God still shows he is with us, even in sophisticated 2021. I think the first way he shows up a lot is through words of power. Words of power. I think most of us have had this experience. You ever have somebody in your life say just the right thing at just the right time in just the right way? And their words to you had the power to change your entire perspective on something or maybe change the trajectory of your life. It could be a conversation with them. Maybe they prayed for you. It could, it could just be the words to a worship song, but words can be powerful. I like how Proverbs talks about the power of words. Proverbs says that gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Sometimes God shows up and shows he is with us through the, the encouraging or maybe even the challenging words of someone in our life. And sometimes words of power aren't necessarily words we hear, but they're words that we read when we read our Bibles. That's why we call this God's words, right? We talked about this, uh, I think, about a month ago, that studies have shown if we read our Bibles as little as four times a week, it has the power to change almost every major area of our life. I'll share with you another verse that's been rocking my world lately. Hebrews 13 says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As we live in a world where the chaos seems to get worse every 24 hours, I, I just need to know God is still here and he's not going anywhere. That brings me hope and peace. So the first way God shows he's with us is words of power. The second way he shows he is present with us is through interesting coincidences. Now, I spent a half a day trying to figure out a more clever way to say this. There's just not. Sometimes interesting things just seem to happen that I believe otherwise wouldn't. Now, some people call these coincidences. Other people call them modern-day miracles. Whatever you call them, I like how William Temple puts it. He has this great quote. He says, when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I don't, they don't. I've had that experience. I don't know about you, but that's just, I can relate to that. So I don't know what this looks like in your life. 
But, but I know in hearing people's stories in this, a lot of times interesting coincidences, coincidences sound a lot like the unexpected check that showed up in the mail when you so desperately needed it. Or maybe it's the good health report that you got from the doctor, and no one can, can explain why you're better, but you're better. Or maybe it's the opportunity that came along that was just the right fit for you. And a lot of times it's, it's the timing of certain things. Or maybe it's the kind of the orchestration of certain things. In some cases, it's the longevity of certain things. I'll tell you what I mean by that. In my house, we have a dishwasher that just won't die. It's ugly as sin. It doesn't match a thing in my kitchen. I've been trying to kill this thing for seven years. It won't die. Could it be that my dishwasher is blessed by the holy God of heaven? I don't know. I just think it's interesting. Interesting to me how often seem, things just seem to work out. It reminds me God is closer than I think. The next way that God shows that he is with us is through tangible evidence. Tangible evidence. This is the stuff that we can see and feel and hear and touch. This one is the awe and wonder of creation. Now, some people think that science and nature compete with God. I like to think they complement God, and they just help us understand how it is he did things. Now, we can spend all day on this, I know, but I'll give you just one example, the human brain. Our brains are a marvel of creation. Author William Hempwell wrote an article where he talked about just how spectacular our brains are as compared to a, a computer. Right, most computers have inside a data processor. Right? It would take 82,000 data processors to model just one second of brain activity. And not only that, that one second would use up one petabyte of memory. Now, if you're like me and you don't know what a petabyte is, a petabyte is the equivalent of 1,000 terabytes. If you're still confused, it's the equivalent of 500 billion pages of text for one second of brain activity. Probably the only caveat would be if you have a teenager in the house. Maybe it's a little less than that. I don't know. But he punctuates his article by saying this. This point helps support the idea that the human brain and all the other parts of the body have a designer that is capable of feats that are unfathomable to humans. So we've got words of power, interesting coincidences, tangible evidence, the last way that God shows he is with us, I think, is the most profound. And this is when our hearts change. Like a lot of us in here, I can speak from experience on this one. If you ask my wife, she would tell you I'm different today than I was when we first met. In a good way, I should clarify, in a good way. <laughs> if you ask my former colleagues from the corporate life, they would probably say the same thing. Why? Because my heart has changed. And I don't say this to brag. This isn't about me. This is about God because he did all the work. Right? The Apostle Paul said, we will know that we have the spirit of the living God inside of us when our lives become known for these things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Does that sound like your life? Me either. At least not till God got a hold of me. I'm making progress now. A little bit every day. 
Not all the way there yet. I love the way my friends in recovery talk about this. We have a mantra in the recovery world where we say, we aim for progress, not perfection. And that is the, that is the, the point of this. That that little bit of progress, the, facts that our, the fact that our hearts are changing, is the evidence, not only of the existence of God, but the presence of God in our lives. Now, I don't know what this looks like for you, but I can tell you in 10 years of doing ministry, here's the stories we hear the most often, things like this. The father who doesn't lose his temper as much anymore. Or the mother who's not as critical of her family as much anymore. Or the couple that finally gets on the same page and they experience peace in their finances. Or the addict that finally finds freedom. Or the woman who believes that she is worthy and valuable because God says she is, not because of what Facebook says. Or the student who doesn't lose sleep over test scores anymore. Or the person who's struggling with thoughts of suicide, who finds hope and a reason for living. God shows his power and presence when we become changed people. Centuries ago, God gave Malachi a message. And in that message was going to be a a promise of a visible sign of love. And the only difference is God spells love a little differently than we do. This is how God spells love. God's present to us is his presence with us. And in a couple minutes we have left, I just want to share with you one last story. There's another prophet from the Old Testament who you may have heard of. His name was Elijah. If you grew up in the church world, you've heard that name before. Elijah is one of the legends, but he had a rough life. Elijah knew what it meant to be in pain and have disappointment, and he, he felt abandoned. There's one moment in his life he was so low, he actually prayed for God to take his life. That's pretty bad. But then he experiences a moment of hope. There's a moment where he is hiding alone in a cave, and he just senses God is coming. God is going to be near. And he does, he just, he gets up and he he leaves the cave and he goes and he stands on the edge of this cliff and he's overlooking this entire valley. And in a moment, a wind came through like a hurricane and just tore this valley apart. Trees flying everywhere, rocks falling down and splitting. I mean, it's just chaos. And he's standing there watching all this and it finally calms down and he realizes that wasn't God. God wasn't in the wind. And a minute later, he feels the ground start shaking. And it gets worse and worse. And a violent earthquake just shakes the foundation of that mountain. Probably knocked him off his feet. And he stands up and he kind of dusts himself off. And he realizes, yeah, that wasn't God either. God was not in the earthquake. And a minute later, a fire comes through and just torches the whole valley. Right? Smoke and flames everywhere. And it finally calms down. And he's just standing there astonished. Right? kind of taken in everything that he had just seen. And as the dust sort of settles, in the silence of that moment, he actually hears a voice whisper to him. He's one of the few people on earth who's actually heard the audible voice of God. Imagine how powerful that would be, right? He did what probably most of us would do. He fell to his knees and he just started worshiping. What a crazy experience that would be to hear the voice of God. But here's the point. Why did God whisper? This blew my mind the first time I heard this. Why did God whisper? 
Surely he could have made his point with the wind and the fire and the earthquake and all that crazy stuff, right? Why would he whisper? He whispered because he's close. God can whisper to us because he is close to us. Even when it feels like he's not, he's closer than we think. The message of Christmas, we celebrate because Emmanuel means God is with us, right next to us. God's gift, his present to us is his presence, his everlasting and close presence with us. And so what do we do with this present we've been given? What do we do with something this incredible? I think, I think we do what we would do with any great gift we receive. The first thing is to just do that, to receive it. And for some of you in here today and some of you watching online, today will be the day you receive that for the very first time. Today is going to be your day you open yourself up to receive the hope and the love of God and you become a follower of Jesus. doesn't mean you got it all figured out yet. It just means this is what you want. And if that's you, we are, we are for you and we love you and we want to support you in this step. Please let us know you've done that. You can do that on the card in the seat back in front of you or you can let us know in the chat if you're watching online. Second thing we do with a gift like this is we just, just be grateful for it. We acknowledge the sacrifice that God made to be with us, and we show our gratitude. This is why we take communion every week. That is the moment of communion, to just remember and show our gratitude. Last thing, and this is for all of us, what do we do with a great gift like this? We share it. The hope and the love that we've received, we share with somebody else who we know needs to receive the very same thing. And for us this week, it's super easy. It could just be as simple as inviting someone to come with you to Christmas Eve. Right? For somebody you know and love, Christmas Eve could be the very first step for them on their faith journey. And this is your chance to show them how much you love them by being with them when they have that experience. I hope for that for you. I hope this Christmas is the most powerful and profound Christmas ever. As we live in the knowledge of God's great presence with us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's hard to just say the word thank you for something so significant as the gift of your presence with us. I mean, the idea that, that there really is a God who created everything that we see and then went so much further to actually come and be in that creation with us is astounding. And so God, I, we don't have any other words to say but just thank you. Thank you for your love, for your grace, and for your presence. And God, I know there's a lot of us right now still feeling pain and disappointment. And there's a lot of us that feel abandoned and are dealing with those kind of wounds. And so God, I pray, I think as a lot of us pray, that you would show up, that you really would show your presence with us in new and powerful and profound ways. God, that you would make your presence known in our lives and it would be unmistakable that all the glory would go to you and the comfort and joy that it brings knowing that you are real and you are close. So God, I pray for that. I pray for lots of modern day miracles that point to how gracious and full of love you are. And God, we pray this is in Jesus' name. Amen.